Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Jeff. We have been talking about the doctrine of God. That's what we've been talking about. It's called in theology, theology proper. So uh, the doctrine of God, theos, uh, the Greek word for God, and logos, the Greek word for a word or study about. And so the doctrine of God. And what we want to talk about today uh, is a subset of the doctrine of God, and that is Christology. In other words, uh, what is it that uh, we can learn from Scripture uh, about the, uh, the person of, uh, of Jesus Christ? And so uh, Son of God, Son of Man, uh, what are some of the things? And so we've been talking about those. We talked about the doctrine of God. Uh, we've talked about some of uh, God's characteristics. We've talked about his triunity. Uh, the, the fact that uh, there is one God, but he has eternally existed as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've talked about uh, various Trinitarian heresies, uh, different ways of conceiving of, uh, of the Trinity that would actually kind of emphasize uh, the unity of, of God to the neglect of the diversity uh, or that might uh, emphasize his diversity uh, to the neglect of his unity and kind of end up with this idea that there are three gods or something like that. We talked about why the Trinity is important for our life and worship. So if you, didn't, uh, if you weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, audio. We also talked about God's sovereignty. We talked about the existence of evil. And, uh, and man's responsibility for sin. How can God be good and sovereign and yet sin still exist in the world? What's called a theodicy. Uh, we talked about creation and various uh, theories of creation. Last week, uh, we talked about prayer. But this week, in particular, we want to talk about uh, Christology. And then we'll carry that conversation into next week as we talk about some Christological heresies. As we talked about Trinitarian heresies, we're going to talk about Christological Heresies, but this week we want to talk about Christological orthodoxy. Uh, what is it that the church has confessed in terms of kind of the boundaries of belief for us as Christians as it relates to uh, the nature and, uh, and the person of Jesus Christ? And so let me give you a summary of kind of how the church has conceived of this doctrine. Uh, and then we'll dive into it. And so the church has historically found itself saying this, that uh, Christ, that Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, that Jesus Christ is one person, but this one person has two distinct natures, that he's fully God and that he's fully man. That it, whatever it means to be God, Jesus is. Whatever it means to be man, Jesus is. This is some sort of uh, strange theological math, kind of like uh, the way that the Trinity is theological math. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet you only have one God. So one plus one plus one equals three. So likewise, in strange Christological math, you have that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, but he's not 200% of something. He is one Person. So this is the way that uh, Wayne Grudem, whose uh, textbook, Systematic Theology, we've been using, this is the way that he defines this doctrine, which is called the hypostatic union. He says that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person, and then listen to this next phrase, and will be so forever. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever forever. This is one of the things that we want to emphasize, that it's not that he was fully human, but he no longer is human, or that he was God and then became human and he no longer was God. Know that in the incarnation, those two natures have fused together and they remain that way perpetually. And we'll talk about why that is important. But let's begin by talking about Jesus's humanity. And so I want to, I want to begin with kind of the beginning of his humanity, and so we'll look at and consider the doctrine of the virgin birth. By the way, a lot of people confuse the doctrine of the virgin birth with the doctrine of the immaculate conception. Those are totally different things. So if you ever, uh, you know, hear somebody make a joke about how uh, they were conceived by immaculate conception, that has nothing whatsoever to do with the virgin birth. Instead, the immaculate conception is a Roman Catholic doctrine uh, that says that Mary was born without sin, immaculate, uh, without the stain of sin. And that was made church dogma back in 1854. So it's totally different. It has nothing to do with the virgin birth. It has 
it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus' birth in particular. It has to do with Mary's birth and the idea that Mary was preserved uh, from sin. And uh, so that is the, uh, the virgin uh, birth. And so the Roman Catholic Church holds to this idea of immaculate conception. They also, by the way, hold to the idea of the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. Uh, that has a long history in the Roman Catholic Church and in Eastern Orthodox churches stretching back uh, for uh, centuries. And so the perpetual virginity of Mary is the idea that she remained a virgin, even after she has uh, Jesus, that she and Joseph never actually conceived, that any of the references you see in Scripture uh, to Jesus' uh, brothers or sisters or anything like that uh, are uh, references instead to cousins or something uh, like that. And so the idea of perpetual virginity is not something that is taught in Scripture. Uh, in fact, I think you see the exact opposite because you do see references to Jesus' brothers. Uh, but, uh, uh, but the virgin birth itself, the idea that Mary had known no man, uh, certainly is a biblical idea. That's not just an invention of tradition or something uh, like that. And, uh, and so there is, though, this claim that you might encounter sometimes that says that uh, Mary wasn't actually a virgin or that this isn't really a biblical doctrine because both the Greek and the Hebrew words can really just mean young woman. They don't necessarily mean uh, virgin. And to some degree, that is true. It's a uh, correct premise that is that the Hebrew and Greek terms can in certain contexts just mean young woman and not necessarily uh, virgin. The words themselves are somewhat ambiguous depending on the, uh, the context. So the Hebrew word uh, Alma uh, from Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That word in certain contexts can just mean uh, young women. Probably in the original uh, prophecy of Isaiah, there is this uh, immediate uh, fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah's day, uh, and that probably is just a young woman that's being talked about. But there is also this future fulfillment in the real sense of to fulfill, to fill full this, uh, this prophetic meaning that uh, is encapsulated or consummated in, uh, in Jesus Christ, in which case this word then carries this connotation uh, of an actual virgin. Uh, same with the, uh, the Greek word parthenos, which is cited in uh, Matthew 1.23 uh, or Luke 1.27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So while these words, Alma in Hebrew and Parthenos in Greek, while they can just simply mean young women, there are a number of reasons why the church has held that in these contexts, they're not just uh, referring to a young woman in general, they are referring to a virgin in particular. And so consider Matthew 1.18, Matthew 1.18, which says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, listen to this next phrase, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Before they came together. That's a statement of her virginity. So the strength of the argument of the virgin birth doesn't just lie in this one Hebrew word or this one Greek word, but also in these contextual statements like 118, which says, before they had come together. Matthew 1, 24 through 25. But when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, listen to this phrase, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Not only uh, is that kind of a, uh, a nail in the coffin of the idea of perpetual virginity, he knew her not until, the implication being after she had given birth, then he knew her. Uh, not only is it a uh, kind of a nail in the coffin of the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, but it also is a strong defense of the idea of the virginity of Mary and, uh, and the virgin birth of Jesus. He knew her not, she was a virgin, until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Or Luke 1.34, where Mary asked the angel, uh, he's, uh, she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? In that context, it doesn't make any sense to say, how am I going to give birth since I'm a young woman? Young women can give birth. 
A virgin cannot give birth. That's what makes sense of the question. So again, uh, the argument for the virgin birth doesn't just uh, hinge upon these two particular uh, words, one in Hebrew and one in Greek, but in all of these different contextual things. So let me talk for a moment about why the virgin birth matters, why this is not some inconsequential thing. I read a a book one time that talked about uh, the virgin birth kind of being one of these bricks in a wall. And certain bricks you can remove from the wall and you still have a faithful and solid uh, wall. What's really interesting is, is this guy, uh, he's, he's uh, the guy who wrote this book, has actually moved all of the bricks from the wall uh, and he has now gone into very liberal theology. Uh, but anyway, uh, why this is not a brick that can be removed from the wall, this is actually kind of a load-bearing brick. This is a cornerstone, if you will. If you were to remove this brick, the entire wall would begin to cr- uh, crumble. This is not a loose thread on a sweater. The virgin birth is the type of thread that if you begin to pull it, you find the entire sweater unraveling. So this is why the virgin birth matters. Four reasons I want to talk about. First is because the doctrine of the virgin birth helps us to see that salvation comes from the Lord. It helps us to see that salvation comes from the Lord. This is a demonstration that salvation is something that's extrinsic. It's not something that's intrinsic. It's not something that man could accomplish on our own. It's something where God has to interject into humanity. God has to to enact himself salvation for us. Man couldn't save himself. So this doctrine is important because it helps us to see that. It helps us to see that salvation doesn't come simply through the normal human procreative act that the birth of the Messiah comes because the Lord intervenes within it. So salvation comes from the Lord. That's the first reason. The second reason that I think the virgin birth matters is because it, it shows us, it helps us to see how there can be this unification, this uniting together between the deity and humanity of Christ in one person, which will be really important that uh, we'll discuss here uh, shortly. So it helps us to see how Jesus can be both human and divine in one person. It also explains, it helps us explain how he's fully human and yet without the stain of original sin. So mankind is born, we inherit. We'll talk about this when we get to Romans 5 uh, in our sermon series sometime next year. Uh, and uh, so when we get to Romans 5, we'll look at the doctrine that we are born, we inherit a sinful nature from Adam. And so this helps us to see how Jesus could be fully human and yet at the same time not uh, inherit uh, original sin. So that's a third reason this is important. And a fourth reason, though we certainly do not worship Mary, uh, it's still not a good idea to impugn her moral character. She is, after all, the mother of our Lord. And, uh, and so these are a few reasons why I would say the virgin birth is not some sort of peripheral matter. It's not something that is just simply on the, uh, the, the kind of a tertiary doctrine, a third level, fourth level doctrine. It's something that I think is at the very heart of our understanding of who Christ is and what he has done uh, to save his people. So let's go a little further into this idea of the humanity of Christ and look at what the Bible says about that. I want to begin by showing all of the different places where Scripture talks about Jesus in his humanity uh, by uh, recognizing the fact that Jesus seems to have these human weaknesses and limit, limitations, all right? The, the picture that we see in the Bible, if you know, there, there are some, uh, some renderings of like Superman, and, uh, and so there are certain uh, episodes in particular, uh, I think, I don't remember which one it was, but there's one where he reaches into fire to grab something, and he pulls his hand down, and he has to act like he's burned, but he's not really burned, all right? There's this, uh, there's this depiction of Superman or various characters. Have you seen, uh, I forget the name of the movie, so I won't mention it. But, uh, but th- there are, I think, a number of different uh, examples in our literature, in our movies, uh, where someone has these exalted powers, and they're kind of impenetrable, invincible. And that's not the image that we see of Jesus. He's not faking it. He's not faking like he's got a cut or a burn or whatever it might be. He has human weaknesses and limitations. He actually takes on what it means to be human. We see in Luke 2, 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger 
because there was no place for them in the end. He is human. He's vulnerable. He's susceptible to the elements. He's uh, susceptible to all that it means to be an infant, to get hungry, to thirst, to cry, all of these sorts of things. Luke 2.40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of the Lord was upon him. If he grew and he became strong, the implication is at one point he was small and weak, and he grows. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, Luke 2.52. John 4.6, when he's an adult, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is wearied from his journey. He experiences fatigue. He gets uh, tired. He knows what it means uh, to be tired and fatigued. John 19, 28, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. He experiences hunger and thirst. Matthew 4, 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Luke 23, 26, as he is being led away to crucifixion, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. He's so weakened by his scourging that he can't even carry uh, the cross, and so somebody has to carry it for him. He has these, again, human weaknesses and limitations. Luke twenty three forty six. then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He experiences uh, even the weakness and limitation of uh, death itself. This is uh, contrary to some of the the uh, early heretical movements within growing out of the church, like Gnosticism. If you ever heard of any of the Gnostic Gospels, like the Da Vinci Code talks about the Gospel of Peter and uh, the Gospel of Judas and Thomas and these sorts of things. Well, in these particular uh, demonstrations or portrayals of Jesus, Jesus isn't actually fully human. So he's on the cross and he's actually laughing at the idea that everyone's going to think I died but really I'm going to depart from this body at the last moment, so I don't really die. That's not the picture that you see of Jesus. He experiences human weaknesses and limitations, even the weakness and limitation of, uh, of death. Furthermore, we see that he is still human. That it's not just, I, I think this is something um, back uh, whenever I worked at my previous church, uh, in our doctrinal statement, and I think it's similar here, uh, at, uh, at Parkway, but we had a statement that says, Jesus is fully God and fully human. We'd have a number of people who would ask, why does it say is? Why doesn't it say was? He was fully human, but now he's not. Now he's just God. That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is at one point he was only God, then he joined himself to humanity, but he doesn't somehow cease to be human after the resurrection. He has eternally united himself with uh, uh, humanity. That's one of the beautiful realities of the hypostatic union is that it's an eternal merging together of deity and humanity. So for eternity future, Jesus will be perpetually God and man, that we will commune with the God-man. And so I think a lot of people tend to think of what Jesus did, kind of like, you ever see the movie City of Angels with... uh, Nick Cage and Meg Ryan, and Nick Cage is an angel, and he has to give up his angelosity or whatever it is in order to become human, but it's kind of a one-way transaction. He can't, can't go back anymore. I think that's how some people think of Jesus. Either uh, he kind of gives up his deity, and he can't become human, and, or, or he gives up his, his deity, and he becomes human, and so he can't become divine again, or he gives up his humanity after his resurrection, and he is no longer human. But that's not uh, what we see in the Scripture. Even after his resurrection, Luke 24, 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see uh, that I have. So Jesus, even in his resurrected, that's what resurrection is, by the way. Resurrection isn't just life after death. Resurrection is life after life after death death. So when you die, biblically, you go, you depart. If you love Jesus, you depart and you're with him, but you're waiting. That's the language of 2 Corinthians 5. The language of 2 Corinthians 5 is the idea that you're unclothed as if you are naked, 
uh, in heaven. You're waiting for something. And what is that thing that you're waiting for? You're waiting to be further clothed with the new body, with a resurrected body. That's the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection. It's a very physical thing. I think sometimes we, uh, we have this sort of hyper-spiritual view of salvation, a hyper-spiritual view of eternity that's more influenced by like Greek Platonic thought than it is by uh, the Bible. You don't live in heaven forever as a disembodied soul or something like that. You live on a new earth. You live in a very physical place with a physical body. Your salvation is a very physical thing as well as a spiritual thing. John 20, 25, again, after the resurrection, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he, that's uh, Thomas, said to them, unless I see in his uh, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then Jesus uh, appears before him and uh, encourages him to do just those things. Or Luke 24, uh, 41 through 43. And while they still uh, disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. So even in his resurrected body, he is still eating. He's, there's still, again, this idea of physicality. He is still human. Acts 111, and um, this angel appears and says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the same way. He went up as a human. I think the implication is he's going to come down in the same way. He's going to come down as a human, there is, again, this perpetual uniting. It's not just that Jesus was God, and then he was human, and now he's just God. It's that Jesus was only God, and then in the incarnation, there is this uniting between the deity and humanity of Jesus that remains into perpetuity, into uh, eternity. And the Bible would say not only does he have this human body, we talked about that with all of these different weaknesses that he has, he hungers, he thirsts, not only does he have a human body, but he has a human mind, soul, and emotions, which is really important for us because biblically we see that Jesus only redeems what he assumes. He only redeems what he assumes. In other words, if he doesn't have a human mind, then there's no hope for your mind. If he doesn't have a human soul, there's no hope for your soul. Jesus only redeems whatever it is that he takes on. Whatever the incarnation means, the incarnation is connected to redemption. He only redeems whatever he takes on. And, uh, and so the fact that he has a human mind and soul and emotions is really important for our understanding of our full holistic redemption. It's not just our bodies that are redeemed. It's not just our bodies that are saved. It's, our, uh, it's who we are, our uh, holistic nature so a few examples of Jesus having a human mind, uh, Luke 2.52, we read it earlier, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Um, Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Mark 13.32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. By the way, we, we preached an entire sermon on that. Um, and so if you weren't here for, uh, for that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the audio from uh, whenever we preached on uh, Mark 13 uh, sometime late last year. Um, so Jesus learns things. He grows. He has a human uh, mind uh, while still being om uh, omniscient. And so we talked a little bit about that whenever we talked about uh, the omnis. Uh, but again, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon uh, for the interplay between those two ideas. He also has human souls and emotions. John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He's troubled. John 13, 21, and after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Matthew 26, 38, then he said to them, my, so my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. Matthew 8.10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus can even marvel. Again, he's omniscient and he's marveling. John 11.35, Jesus weeps at Lazarus's tomb. Hebrews 5.7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries 
and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Hebrews 5, 8 through 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus is tempted, which points to his humanity, because James 1, 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the humanity of Jesus is what helps us to understand how God cannot be tempted, and yet Jesus, being fully God, can be tempted because he is, in addition to being fully God, he is fully and uh, truly uh, human. All right, so whatever it means to be human, Jesus is. He's got a human body. He's got a human soul. He's got a human mind. He's got human limitations and weaknesses. All of these. Whatever it is to be human, Jesus is. Now, here's one of the difficulties. When we think of human, like if I were to, if you didn't know we were talking about Christology uh, today, you didn't know we were going to be talking about how Jesus is human, and I just asked you, give me some adjectives that describe humanity, you would probably give me words like evil, depraved, fallen, sinful, these sorts of things. And those are true of every other human who's ever lived, right? But those are not true of Jesus. And so one of the things that we have a difficulty with is our interpretation, our understanding of humanity is a warped, defiled version of humanity. If you want to think about it like this, Jesus is actually more human than you or I. Jesus is humanity as it was always intended to be, whereas we have experienced this kind of perverted, defiled understanding of fallen humanity. So Jesus is everything that it means to be human, but not fallen humanity, not sinful uh, humanity, not depraved humanity. That's the importance of this. He's tempted in every way, yet without sin. So Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 helps us to say he's like us in every way. And then in chapter 4, it helps us to see every way except without sin. So 2, 14 through 18 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being uh, tempted. So therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Again, whatever, he only redeems what he assumes. If there is a part of humanity that Jesus doesn't become, then that part of humanity is not redeemed. That part of humanity is not saved. So he's like us in every respect, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The same idea comes up in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So whatever it means to be human, Jesus experiences it with the exception of the version of humanity that is inflicted with, uh, with the stain of sin. So let's talk a little bit about why it's necessary that we confess Jesus' humanity. Why is it important? Why is this a necessary? Again, why is this a thread that we can't pull out of the sweater? Or why is this a brick that we can't remove out of the wall without uh, somehow making the entire wall uh, crumble? The first one, I've said it a number of times just to say it again. He can only redeem what he assumed. And so that's the first reason that it's uh, necessary for Jesus to become human so that he could uh, redeem, he could save, he could ransom uh, us holistically. A second one is for representative uh, obedience, that he could be our representative before the Father in his perfect obedience to all that God uh, demands, uh, that Jesus could be our representative uh, in that Next, to be a substitute and a sacrifice. That's the language that we just read from Hebrews chapter 2. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So there's this connection that the author of Hebrews makes between Jesus being made like us in every respect and being this propitiatory sacrifice, this, this sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of the Father. Those two things are explicitly connected within the Scriptures. He had to be made like us in every way so that he could be the perfect sacrifice and substitute uh, for us. Another reason Jesus' humanity is necessary is so that he could be the only mediator between God and man. We talked about this a little bit if you were here for the Reformation night. Uh, last, uh, last Sunday we celebrated the, uh, the Reformation, the 500th anniversary of the posting of the 95 Theses on the castle door in Wittenberg. And, uh, and so we talked a little bit about some of the differences between Protestant and Catholic theology, and this is one of them. In, in Roman Catholic theology, you have the idea that in some sense, we, we as believers go through the saints and go through Mary and go through sacraments and these sorts of things. But biblically, according to Protestant theology, there's only one mediator. We only go through one person to get to the Father. We only go through one thing to get to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. There's not all of these different levels. Mary is not a mediatrix or a co-redemptrix or any of the other language of Roman Catholic theology. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So because he's God, he can mediate between us. Because he's man, he can mediate between us. So it's important that he is both so that he might be the one mediator between God and man. Another reason that humanity is necessary is to fulfill the original mandate for man to reign and rule over God's creation. That's the storyline of Scripture. The storyline of Scripture is the idea of the kingdom of God and that God has made mankind to exercise dominion, to reign and to rule, to subdue the earth, uh, to bear fruit and to multiply and to subdue the earth for him and for his glory. And so uh, Jesus Christ, by being a fully human, he forever will reign over the earth, thus fulfilling the original creation mandate for mankind to rule and reign over creation. And then lastly, because denying this is explicitly linked with false teaching in Scripture. First John, one of the main reasons that First John is written is because there is this uh, incipient false teaching within the church that is beginning to gather steam, that, uh, and part of the, uh, the, the essence of this false teaching is the idea that Jesus doesn't really become human because uh, what is fleshly is evil and bad. Uh, what's, what's physical, what's material is bad. What's spiritual is good, but what's material is bad. And uh, so there's this false teaching. And so uh, the author of 1 John says this by, uh, in chapter 4, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world uh, already. So a few reasons why humanity was necessary. He could only redeem what he assumed to be a representative uh, and uh, in regards to his obedience, to be a substitute and sacrifice, to be the only mediator between God and man, to fulfill the original mandate for man to reign over creation, and because the Bible itself explicitly links the denial of the humanity of Christ uh, to a uh, heretical false teaching. So that's the humanity of Christ. Let's move on to uh, the deity of Christ. There's a number of different ways that you could look at trying to demonstrate or to prove the idea that Jesus is fully divine, fully human and fully divine. Remember, that's the summary of what we're talking about uh, today. There's a number of different places you could go or ways that you could argue with that. The first one are just explicit evidences. There's a number of texts that just outright say it, all right? John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By the way, the Word in John 1, 14, it says the Word became flesh. So we're talking about Jesus who was made flesh, the incarnation. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We've talked before, by the way, about uh, 
uh, the, uh, some of the cults have this sort of idea that because it doesn't have an article there in the, the original Greek, it, it doesn't say, it says the word was God, but it doesn't say the God. They'll say, well, so that what it means there is that Jesus is a God, but he's not God God. He's just a version of God. And we've talked before uh, in class about the way that uh, the Greek language functioned. And what John is wanting to do here is he wants to distinguish the Father and the Son, but also to compare the Father and the Son. There's unity and diversity. And so he doesn't want to say that, uh, that Jesus, the Son, the Word, was with the Father, and the Son was the Father, because the Son is not the Father. The Son is God, but He's not the Father. So that's the way that He does it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, that is God the Father. And the Word was God, that is the triune nature, whatever it means to be uh, divine. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 20, 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And he's not uh, condemned for doing so. He's not struck down for blasphemy or anything like that. Jesus actually receives his worship. Romans 9, 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Titus 2:13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So consider the implication there. But of the Son, this is a quotation of uh, the Old Testament, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. The Son is called uh, God later or earlier in Hebrews 1. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. So God, the Father, is telling the angels to worship his Son. And worship is something that biblically is only reserved for God. In fact, that's the height of blasphemy throughout the Old Testament, is to worship anything other than God, to serve, to worship and serve anything other than God. In fact, that's what Jesus quotes himself. You shall not worship anything but the Lord uh, your God. And yet the Father tells the angels to worship his Son. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So that's one of the ways that you can argue for the uh, deity of Christ is to look at these explicit evidences. There's a number of other texts that you could look at in addition to these, but that's one of the ways. Another way that you could do it is uh, what are more implicit evidences. They're not as explicit. They don't explicitly say Jesus equals God, but that's the implication. That's what we are to infer as we read uh, the, uh, the Scripture. And so, just a few different uh, places that you could go to for that. The first one being all of the different I am's of, uh, of Scripture. And, uh, and so, you see seven of them in particular in the book of John. Who can name some of those? I am blank and blank and blank. Way and truth. Mm-hmm. Good shepherd. What else? The vine, the bread, uh, the light, um, the resurrection and the life, yeah. So there's seven of those that are used. Each of those, what's significant is not just what he says that he is, although each of those things you could somehow look at and see how God himself in the Old Testament is that different thing. He is life, he is the way, he is the truth, all of these sorts of things. So it's not just in what he refers to himself, I am the blank, even in the, the use of the word I am, or uh, the two words I am, ego, I, me, or amy in, uh, in Greek, the idea there is uh, relating back to God, revealing of himself. What's, what's God's covenant name in the Old Testament? Yahweh. Yahweh. He reveals himself as Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. And Yahweh means, uh, from the, the best that we can uh, put together, it means I am that I am. 
It's a, it's, a, it's a reflection of his self-existence, and that's what Jesus is using. He's implying, he's alluding to that reality when he uses these I am statements. So not only all of those I am's, I am the bread, the light, the door, the good shepherd, all of these sorts of things, uh, but also there's a couple of places where he will use uh, that uh, language, ego me, or I am, in a way that gets him accused of blasphemy. John 8, 57 through 59 So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus uh, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now notice even how in English that doesn't sound like good English, right? Before Abraham was, I was, would be the way that we would say it. He's not simply wanting to point to the fact that he is preexistent. He's wanting to make a larger claim. That would be, you know, amazing in and of itself, because basically it would mean that he was thousands of years old. But he wants to do more than just simply claim preexistence. He wants to claim deity. So he doesn't just simply say, I was. He says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In other words, the Jews understood what he was doing. In this moment, by making this statement, they understood he's not just claiming to be really old. He is claiming to be God, so they pick up stones to throw at him. John 10, 29 through 33, a similar sort of thing happens. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's a tremendously blasphemous statement if Jesus is not fully God. For anything to be on the same level as God throughout the Old Testament in, uh, in, uh, in Jewish thought, is the height of blasphemy and idolatry. And yet Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So he's either true uh, or he is a blasphemer. And so the Jews, obviously thinking he's not uh, being honest, he's not actually divine, they pick up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Again, the Jews know what he's doing, though. They answer him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So there are these implicit evidences, like the references to uh, Jesus as I am and to the accusations of blasphemy uh, by his uh, critics. Um, what's interesting is the Jews get it right. They get it wrong in regards to thinking he's not who he actually says he is, but they get right the implication at least. They know what he is implying. What he is implying is, I am God. So they get the implication wrong. They just get the application incorrect. Uh, instead of falling down to worship him, they try to kill him. Other implicit evidences, you could look for the deity of Christ. Uh, you could certainly look at the miracles uh, that he does. What's hard about doing that, though, and so if you're in a conversation with uh, someone who might not be on the same page in regards to Jesus being fully divine, the difficulty with that is that they'll probably just throw out, well, didn't Elijah do great works and uh, these other prophets of old? Didn't Moses do all of these uh, wonders? And, uh, and so it's, uh, what's, what's difficult is the miracles that Jesus does are kind of on par with some of the miracles that you'll see uh, by some of the, uh, the greater prophets within uh, the Old Testament. And so I do think that they are an evidence for Jesus' deity. Uh, I just don't think that they're going to prove it if you're having a conversation with someone, so you should probably anticipate uh, that, uh, that objection. And uh, so, But they are, uh, I think, a, uh, an illustration or an implicit evidence. Um, but I think one of the most interesting ones are different illusions, and uh, not illusions like magic, but illusions where Jesus alludes to, or where uh, the biblical author alludes to Jesus's um, uh, deity. And so we talked a lot about these whenever we walked through the book of Mark um, over the past couple of years. And so again, for each of these texts, I'd encourage you to go back uh, if you really want to kind of squeeze everything you can out of this and see all of the different levels of illusion here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the audio from those, uh, from those sermons. Um, but in each of these, you'll see these different ways. Mark in particular, I think, does this better than anybody else uh, where he will make these little illusions. He'll, he'll, he'll insert in something that's really implicit that you really have to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze to get that last drop uh, out of it. 
Uh, and so we see kind of three that all occur within the span of uh, a few chapters, uh, but there are dozens of others uh, places in the book of Mark, uh, one of them being the feeding of the 5,000, Mark 6, 30 through 44. And, uh, and so not only is Jesus just simply feeding the 5,000, there's even a references there that says that he's not simply doing what Moses did, right? So Moses, in a sense, provides bread for the people in the wilderness. Moses is the instrument through which God is working in ancient Israel and as he provides manna. But the way that, uh, that the narrative is constructed is to show that Jesus is not uh, being compared to Moses. Jesus is being compared to Yahweh. It's not Moses who provides the bread in the, the desert. It's Yahweh who provides the bread in the desert. And so Jesus is the one who provides uh, the bread in, uh, in the desert. Jesus is the one who's feeding his people, this multitude of people in uh, the wilderness. So there's an allusion there again. Or the walking on the water in Mark 6, 45 through 52. And it talks about Jesus there is intending to pass by his people. He's tending to pass by his people. And that word, pass by, has a, uh, a particular uh, interesting, significant usage in the Old Testament. It's the word that's used of Yahweh passing by Moses. If you remember the story when Moses says, show me your glory, and God passes by him and he sees the, the fringes of, uh, of God's glory. That's what ha- is happening there. Jesus is passing by his people and they're seeing the glory of Yahweh passing by them in Jesus, which is why whenever they're afraid, he says, take heart. And our English translations say, it is I. But again, it's that ego I me. Take heart, I am. Not just take heart, it's me, Jesus. No, take heart, it's Yahweh. I am Yahweh is the implication there again, just this allusion to all of the imagery of Exodus 33 through 34 when Yahweh passes by and then Yahweh says, I am that I am. I am uh, Yahweh. And it says that they're astounded as a result of this because they didn't understand about the loaves. What didn't they understand about the loaves? They didn't understand that Jesus is not just like Moses. They didn't understand that Jesus is like Yahweh. That's what they didn't understand. If they had understood that, they wouldn't have been astounded by this. They wouldn't have been astounded when Jesus shows them his glory as he passes by them. And the last one being the calming of the storm in Mark 4, 35 through 41. Whenever we preached on this, we talked about the interesting fact there. there, There's this huge storm. They think they're going to die. They're afraid. They're terrified. They wake Jesus up. He calms the storm. He rebukes the sea, which is something that you see only Yahweh doing in the Old Testament. In fact, there's uh, the, an account in apocryphal literature of, uh, of someone trying to rebuke a storm and that person is struck by lightning and they die because they're trying to do what only God can do. Jesus does what God can do. And, uh, and it says after that, after the, the, the sea is perfectly still, then it says they were filled with great fear. And so we talked about the fact, I can understand why you're fearful whenever the storm is raging, the boat is uh, tossing in the wind, the waves are coming into the boat, all of these things, you think you're going to die, but why were they filled with such great fear after everything stilled? Because that's all of a sudden when this internal storm starts happening, and they begin to realize their categories for understanding who Jesus is are being blown up and blown away in the storm. Because they realize all of a sudden that this is not just a great man, this is not just a prophet, this is not just someone with authority, this is someone with the authority that only Yahweh has. What man is this? Who Even the, the wind and the sea obey him. Only Yahweh does those sorts of things. So you have these allusions. So those are some of the implicit. You have explicit evidences, places in Scripture where it just gives kind of a, an equation. Jesus equals God. You have implicit evidences where you're intended to read between the lines and to put them together. You have that with the, the various I am's, the accusations of blasphemy, the miracles, and then various uh, allusions. Uh, so those are some of the evidences for the deity of God. But what about the idea that Jesus kind of gave up his deity when he became human? It's a, called the kenosis theory, all right, from uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
The Greek word there is kanao. It's where we get the idea, the, the kenosis theory. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God uh, the Father. So what does it mean there that he emptied himself? And so in the late 19th century, so this is a very late understanding, a very late false teaching, but in the late 19th century you had some German theologians, and then later on, uh, 30, 40 years later, you had some British theologians who kind of came up with this idea called the kenosis uh, theory, again, from that Greek word kanao, which means to empty yourself. And their theory was that in that, what Jesus is doing is emptying himself of his deity. He's basically pouring out his deity. He's emptying himself of all of his omnis. He's no longer omnipotent or omnipresent or omniscient or anything else that it means to be divine. We talked about all the attributes of deity um, a few weeks back. You can go back and listen to that. But the idea is that that's how they took that verse, that it's saying that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. So in other words, he was God, but he ceased to be God because he emptied himself of that. And then after his resurrection, he became God again or something like that. But that's the idea, that he emptied himself. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible's not talking about Jesus emptying himself of his deity. It's the idea that he empties himself of his glory, which is why he'll say in John 17, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before the foundation of the world. That's what he's emptied himself of. He's emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He's emptied himself by taking on human weaknesses and limitations. He empties himself by taking on humanity. By the way, that's why Philippians 2, that those verses that we read aren't just about Jesus emptying himself. It says, the very beginning, it says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, imitate him in this. How do we imitate Christ? Not by emptying ourselves of something that is inherent to our humanity, so if Jesus empties himself by becoming not God, do we empty ourselves by becoming not human? No, obviously not. How do we empty ourselves? By denying our preferences, by denying our privileges, by laying down our pride. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's laying down preferences and privileges and glory, and he's taking on the humiliation of being uh, a man. That which we boast in is actually humbling for Jesus uh, to take on. And so uh, the idea there is, uh, I forget who says it, but some famous church father or theologian uh, had said at one point that remaining what he was, he became what he uh, was not. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. In other words, when he becomes human, he remains divine. He doesn't lose that. He simply adds something to it. He remains fully God, and he adds humanity to his deity. That's the glory of the hypostatic union. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So let's talk a little bit about why his deity is necessary. Again, next week what we'll do is we'll kind of look at, okay, now we have all of these biblical evidences. Let's see how the church put it together. Let's see how the church put it together at the council, and then we'll consider some of the false ways or unhelpful ways to, to look at it as we did with Trinitarian heresies and these sorts of things. Uh, but first, why is it necessary for us to confess and to believe and to rest in Jesus' deity? The first one, because only God can pay the penalty for our sin. If Christ is not divine, then his uh, sacrifice is not sufficient to save us from our sin. That's the first one. Only God can pay Salvation comes from the Lord. We talked about that with the importance of the virgin birth. Salvation has to come from outside of us. And so if he's not fully God, uh, then he couldn't pay the penalty and his sacrifice was not sufficient. The second one is just the fulfillment of the various covenants that God makes with his people. Think of the, the Abrahamic covenant. If you remember uh, the account, uh, Abraham there is told to cut some animals in two, and then he cuts the animals in two, and what happens to Abraham? Does remember? Abraham is put into a deep sleep, and then what does God do? 
God passes through. Right? The idea, the image there is, uh, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me. May I be divided into two. May I be torn asunder. May I be killed. When God walks that line between those two things, what is he basically doing? He is basically sentencing himself to death because man could never fulfill the provisions of the covenant. And yet God has made a covenant that says this will be fulfilled And so by walking through it, he has already said, I will take on this debt myself. I will pay this debt. So if Christ is not divine, then all the glory and the work of salvation is not due to God alone. Another reason, if he's not, then he is uh, not worthy of worship and thus is a blasphemer for receiving it. You remember that scene in uh, The Wizard of Oz? where Toto is kind of pulling on the curtain, and, uh, and Oz says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Because he wants to have this facade that he has all of this power. He's the great and powerful Oz, right? And really, he's just this simple man. Well, if Jesus is not fully divine, the curtain's uncovered, and you find he's just a man. He's not worthy of our worship. He's not worthy of our affection. He's not worthy of our attention. What are we doing here today? There's no reason. There's better things to do on a Sunday if Jesus isn't fully God risen from the dead, than to spend our time here. We could be watching football or sleeping in or whatever uh, it might be. And so this gives us uh, passion and purpose for our uh, worship, and, uh, and it means that Jesus is not a blasphemer for receiving worship throughout Scripture. If he's not divine, then the Scriptures are not true. The number of places that we sell, there are explicit and implicit evidences. So our confidence in Scripture Again, this image of the brick wall. If you can all of a sudden begin to remove bricks, how can you trust that any brick is going to remain? And so if uh, he's not divine, then the Scriptures are not true and thus not trustworthy, and thus we have no foundation, no objective standard for right and wrong, no objective standard for truth. If he's not divine, then he cannot be the representative between God and man as a mediator, as we talked about. And if he's not divine, then he could not reveal the image of the Father, nor restore us to the image of God. So just a few different ways that the deity of Christ is necessary. Again, what we'll do next week is we want to take all of these biblical evidences, this idea that Jesus is fully God, fully man, in one person, and see, okay, in light of this is what the Bible says, let's look at the early church and how they were wrestling through this and to see kind of the boundaries, the borders that mark out uh, where the church has landed in regards to how we are to understand all of these different uh, uh, depictions. And I want to end just by reading a few of these quotes. I'll put them in your notes because I just think they're interesting because they kind of show those, uh, this, uh, this paradox, if you will, of Jesus being both fully God and fully human. And, uh, and so, first one being by the Prince of Preachers, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, infinite and yet an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet nursing at a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in, her, in a mother's arms, heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor, that man should be made in God's image is a wonder, but that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder, that the ancient of days would be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle. And then Augustine, man's maker was made man, that the bread might be hungry, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey, that strength might be made weak, that life might die. In a second, I'll pray for us. Just as a reminder, we have about uh, 30 minutes or so um, before services start. Uh, so we'd encourage you just to spend that time lingering, hanging out, uh, chatting. Uh, your kids, though, if you have kids that are in elementary school, if you would hold off for about uh, 12 or so more minutes, uh, 1015 is the time uh, that would, or 1015? Yeah, 1015 would be the, the, the best time to go and pick them up. And uh, so we love you. We're grateful that you're here. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for uh, your plan of salvation. Thank you for your son and all of the beauty and glory and uh, complexity of the hypostatic union. 
Thank you that he is fully human, and so thus he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He knows what it's like uh, to be human. He knows what it's like to experience temptation. He knows what it's like to experience sickness and weakness and all of our limitations. He can sympathize with us. He can empathize uh, with us. He can be a faithful high priest. He can be a perfect propitiation for our sins. I thank you that he is also fully God. So therefore, we can worship him and we can know that his sacrifice was sufficient to save us from our sins, that we can know that you have perfectly fulfilled the covenants that you make with your people. And so I pray that we might just exult in these truths. We might not be, uh, we might not allow our uh, fragile mind's inability to fully grasp and comprehend the hypostatic union to rob us of an opportunity to relish in the beauty and glory of it and to worship you and to worship your son and to worship the spirit. And so help us now as we go forth from here and, uh, and sing and pray and talk and listen to your word and uh, to repent and be convicted and all of the good things that I trust that you have in store for your people this morning, Lord. And so bless us uh, as we need and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.